If you please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 75. I want to speak briefly to the sermon series that I'm planning. I'm planning to continue to work through the book of Job, but after getting through a, a chapter, taking a short break to to do a psalm, and uh, in the evening service, we are working through Second Thessalonians, and once that finishes up, I'm planning to start a series in the Gospel of John. So um, that's the, the plan moving forward. So tonight we have Psalm 75 as our text for this evening's sermon. I'd like to read now Psalm 75, hear God's word. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. The set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. We had a chance this this morning in Sunday school to spend some time in, in Psalm 73, and I preached on Psalm 73 a few weeks ago. And when we were looking at that psalm, the psalmist was struggling with the fact that the wicked always seem to prosper, while the righteous, and Asaph puts himself within that category, um, the righteous were being stricken and chastened with many troubles. And the psalmist Asaph confessed that he had become envious of the wicked, and that his feet had almost slipped until he came into the sanctuary of God and came to understand that the wicked were destined for judgment. We might say that the psalmist was wrestling with the fact that God did not appear to be near. To the contrary, he appeared to be distant because blessings and curses seemed to be going to the wrong people. It seemed that the universe was in a state of ungoverned chaos. That was Psalm 73. And then we had Psalm 74 where the psalmist was facing a new but similar situation where again God seemed distant. The psalmist calls upon God to stand up against his enemies who have destroyed God's house. And we might say that the psalmist in there in Psalm 74 is calling upon God to be near to his people, near to them by revealing his power in judgment against their enemies. And now in Psalm 75, we are assured that God will judge the wicked. The psalm, unlike Psalms 73 and 74, does not reveal a struggle for Uh, or over what appears to be delayed judgment. But Psalm 75 is a psalm of faith, where the psalmist is acknowledging that God is ruler, that he is near. In fact, this is the reason given in the opening verse for why the congregation is praising God. Notice 
Verse 1, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. And so I've taken as the theme for this evening's message, the nearness of God. In Scripture, the nearness of God, notice in verse 1, is it says here, for your name is near, and in Scripture, the name of God stands for God himself. And so to say that God's name is near is really to say God is near. And uh, the nearness of God, first of the fact that he's not distant, uh, he's not far away, uh, he's right here, and he is therefore able and ready to act in righteousness and judgment against the wicked. That's the specific thing that the psalmist is considering, and uh, God will act. Uh, This psalm is a declaration and response to this particular truth. Notice that in this psalm, as we think of uh, the general uh, outline here, that the speakers in this psalm alternate. The congregation speaks. That's what we find in verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. Then in verse 2, and all the way through uh, verse 5, we have God speaking. We have the first person at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. And then in verses 6 through 8, it's thought that the preacher is is speaking in in those particular verses, referring to what God will do. And then in verse 9, it's still the preacher talking, or perhaps it's the congregation as one voice. And then we have in verse 10, either these are the words that the congregation is quoting regarding God, or this is the words of God himself. Putting it all together, this, is, this psalm is, is one of warning, and it's also one of comfort, all related to this theme that God is near. We give thanks for your name is near. In the psalm, there are a couple of expressions that are used that I want to explain right here at the beginning. I'm referring to the word horn, which is used in verses 4 and 5, and also in verse 10. There's also this idea of a cup, this figure of a cup that's used in verse 8, also in connection with the Lord's judgment. I want to begin, as we look at these various concepts, I want to begin with the concept of horn, and we notice that God is near and that he notices the horn of the wicked. The, the horn of the wicked is something that is not unknown to God. He is not distant. This is something that he is very well aware of. But what does that mean when we speak of the horn of the wicked? Verses 4 and 5, we read of God, the sovereign Lord, addressing the boastful wicked. And again, in this section are several references to a horn. We have the words in verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Verse 5, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. So a horn, what is meant here by a horn? Of course, we know that horns are those hard-pointed things right on the heads of, of some animals. Cattle, for instance, have horns if they are not removed. Uh, bison have horns, uh, rams, goats. What is the purpose of these horns as we think of them on animals? Well, on the one hand, they are used for defense. On the other hand, they are used for pushing other animals around. And uh, cattle ranchers know that the ones with horns are the ones to watch out for, which is why they are typically um, 
removed early on in the life of that animal, and, but not entirely. Um, is it the case, but the size of an animal's horns has a lot to do with determining its status in the herd? Uh, often the bulls are left with their horns, and the animal with the largest horns is usually boss. And uh, he proudly holds up his, his head up high and shows off his horns to intimidate his neighbors. And so the horn, the, the concept of a horn, it, it comes to represent power. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, Moses is soon to die and blesses Joseph by saying, A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So the figure of this bull with horns is applied to Joseph. And the sons of Joseph are Ephraim and Manasseh. And the idea is that Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be large and powerful nations. And so on the one hand, for God to lift up someone's horn would be to bestow power and blessing by implication to bestow joy and health and prestige. On the other hand, to lift up your own horn is to flaunt your power and prestige. And that's how the figure is used in the psalm in verses 4 and 5, in the context of the wicked with their horns, the wicked are boasting. And we're not told exactly what they're boasting about, but typically the wicked boast about their earthly success, about their power, about their status. Uh, usually their wealth has something to do with their boasting. And what is worse is how these wicked are challenging God's authority. These wicked are lifting up their horn to assert themselves so that God warns them, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. These wicked are apparently thinking that they are pretty high and mighty. Uh, they are not being submissive to God's kingship. They think they have the right and the power to live by their own rules. They believe that they can live however they want and get away with it, that God is not going to be able to stop them. So they think of themselves as having power to live lives according to their own wills, and they proudly stand with their horns lifted up. Our text speaks of a haughty neck. Uh, so your, your version, if you have a different one, might speak of them having a neck outstretched, and the idea is that they are stubborn. Uh, this is a picture of a person refusing to acknowledge God's sovereign rule over his life. And so it seems in the end that these wicked are boasting about how they are in control of their own lives. Uh, they're boasting about how they can do whatever they wish, and they think that God cannot touch them. They think that his justice and his power are irrelevant to them and their lives. But then we notice in verse 10 that also the figure of the horn is used in the context of the righteous. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Verse 10 is, again, it's either uh, God speaking or the people, the congregation of God declaring what God will say, uh, namely that the horns of the wicked will be cut off while the horns of the righteous will be lifted up or exalted. In other words, the wicked are going to be judged, they are going to be humbled, while the righteous will be put into a place of power and honor. The wicked will be punished, they will be judged, while the righteous will be blessed. 
In other words, we see here a, the, the tables being turned on the wicked. I picture this bull who is this big bully who thinks that he's tough and with his horns he lets the other cattle know it. But imagine what things would be like if one day those horns were cut off. What would happen then? Suddenly he is not so big and mighty anymore, right? And I, we can picture the other cattle even beginning to push him around. So this theme of God turning the tables of the proud is found throughout Scripture. And uh, it's found in uh, passages such as the songs of Hannah and the song of Mary. In fact, some scholars believe that Asaph is borrowing some of his phrasing from Hannah's song as he writes Psalm 75. Hannah's song is found back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 2 and notice some of the same themes that Asaph is, is bringing up here in Psalm 75. So back in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah says these words, My heart exalts, exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your, from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I think you can recognize some of the same phrases and themes uh, from uh, common, common themes and, and phrases from Hannah's song and Psalm 75. So we have God near in uh, recognizing the horn, bringing down the horn of, of the wicked, but God is also near in, in judgment. Uh, we have in Psalm 75 the figure of a cup. And in general, a, a cup can have within it that which gives life and refreshment or that which brings drunkenness and death. So it is that the cup is used as a picture in Scripture of either a blessing or a curse. It depends on the context. And in Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, God is the judge who has in his hand a cup and he forces the wicked to drink the full contents of this cup. Verses 7 and 8, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with flowing wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, 
and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is clearly a figure of judgment, and almost always this figure where the cup is used in this way is, uh, is used in Scripture uh, as a figure of God's judgment against those who are proud, against those who are obstinate in their rebellion against God. It seems that in the background of this figure of the cup is the typical drunkard who begins his night of drinking, boasting about how well he can handle his liquor, uh, boasting about his, his ungodly life, but soon he is drunk and reeling. Eventually he can't even stand. And so it is that many fall through the power of drink. The strong and boastful under the influence of liquor are rendered pitiful and weak. And we need to recognize that drunkenness is all about God's judgment. When people go out on the weekend in defiance of God and get drunk, and, and, and drink till they get drunk, they're, they're really making a mockery of God and his judgment of sin. But God has the last word in making them weak and disoriented. According to our text, the wicked will be judged. God is going to meet up with them. He's going to make them drink his cup of wine. Soon they will be drunk, which means that in place of all of their boasting is going to be disgrace and humility like a, like a staggering and falling drunk, they are going to be no match for God and his just wrath. They will be brought low. When we think of the biblical figure of a cup, yes, there are many references in Scripture where that is used as a figure of judgment, but also remember our Lord Jesus on the night before his crucifixion pleading, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That cup that the Lord asks to be removed is the cup of judgment that was poured out upon Jesus as he bore our sins on the cross. And the night before his crucifixion, Jesus knew that the time was near that he would drink this cup, and he was horrified by the thought of that. He knew the seriousness, he knew the terror of God's judgment against sin, and yet Jesus did not back away from his calling. It was the Father's will that he drink that cup in order that you and I, as his people, as, as elect sinners, might not have to. Because Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath in our place, he now comes to us and offers us what is referred to as the cup of the new covenant, saying, drink from it, all of you, referring now to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He offers to us a cup that speaks of redemption and fellowship and spiritual blessings. And yet our psalm speaks of the cup of judgment that will be unleashed against those who refuse to repent and who refuse to believe the gospel, who refuse to accept Christ and his shed blood on the cross as their payment for their sins. Those who make their boast in their own power, those who refuse to acknowledge their need for God's anointed Jesus Christ will be judged. They will not be able to drink of that cup of the new covenant, but they will come face to face with the God of Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 27, who says, drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more. Horrible words, words that refer to the judgment that the wicked will receive. The wicked, the boastful wicked, will one day find that the God that they had rejected, you see, is near. 
that he's always been near. I'm bringing you back now to the theme of God's nearness. I direct your attention again to the opening words of Psalm 75 where the congregation is praising God. They're giving thanks to God because they know God is near. So let's explore that, 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 uh, what that means here a little bit further. What does it mean that God is near? Well, the psalmist may have been thinking about how God is near because he is everywhere. Um, everywhere in his creation, the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent. No matter where you are or what you are doing, God is there. He can see you. Um, I'm reminded of the children's version of the catechism, which asks, where is God? Answer, God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. And the next question and answer logically follows, does God know all things? The answer, yes, nothing can be hid from God. And it makes sense, right, that if God is everywhere, then he is going to see and know what is going on everywhere, which is a reference to his omniscience. So he's omnipresent, he's also omniscient, knows all things, and these truths should affect how you and I live. Maybe you find yourself alone and you have the opportunity to do something wrong, something that God uh, forbids in his word. The temptation is strong to engage in that thing because you think, I can get away with it. No one will know. For you children and young people, there are times when mom and dad are not around, and that's the time when your character is going to show itself one way or another. Your character will shine through. Are you going to do what's right when you could do what's wrong and possibly get away with it, at least with your parents and the people around you? Um, Even as adults, we can be influenced by the fact that we think no one's watching. We tell ourselves no one will know, but no matter how well you may hide from others, God knows all about it. You can be sure God is near. You cannot get away from him, in fact. You will be held accountable by your creator for all that you do, even in darkness. At the same time that God is near also means that God knows if you are being mistreated. Uh, In all of the trials of your life, he knows your struggles. He knows your pain. That God is near means that he's near to his people, to you and me, to help us and to bring comfort. God is not far away in some distant galaxy where he's out of touch with what's going on in your life. No, God is involved in your life, and he's involved in love. He is near in the person of the Holy Spirit to give you the spiritual guidance that you need. And when a tough time comes your way, the Holy Spirit reminds you of the truths of God's word. If, in fact, your mind has been dwelling on God's word, we need to be ever in God's word. And he will remind you of the fact that, for example, all things work together for for good for those who love him. What is the basis for saying that? What is the basis for those words of comfort of God working all things together for our good? Well, it's It's based on the reality that Jesus Christ has earned for us a life of blessing under God's love. Jesus has, by his death on the cross, taken away all of the wrath that our sins deserve, so that in the place of that wrath is nothing but love. We are reminded this evening that God's nearness means that he's not going to leave us nor forsake us. He's not going to give us over to our enemies. And though we may feel from time to time like God is absent, because the wicked seem to be prospering and seeming to, to, to get away with their prideful rejection of God 
the, the wicked have these horns and they seem to be so powerful and, and so boastful and yet they will be judged. When wicked people seek our harm, seek your harm, know that God is near and he allows them to only go so far. He allows them to only do what he has determined that they can do according to his perfect plan. And so we might summarize God's nearness, as I've just now described it, as God sovereignly ruling over this earth. He didn't just create this world and walk away. We don't live in a world of chance happenings and random events. God is intimately involved in his universe. He is present. He is ruling. This is what we call God's providence. It may not always seem this way because there are still many people who reject God's rule over their lives but God is in control even over the wicked. He's even using them to glorify himself in the end. God's word tells us that one day God is going to bring into submission all of those who are currently insisting on lifting up their horns. And so we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We sing the, the hymn, this is my father's world. Remember the words, this is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Do you see how the truth of God's nearness can be a source of fear as well as a source of comfort? If you are one of God's own, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are obeying God out of love because you understand the grace that has been extended to you in Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, if you are uh, one of God's children by faith, trusting in Christ alone, then God's nearness is a source of great comfort. And hopefully this evening you have that relationship with God where you want God to be near you want his fellowship. You want to know him more intimately. You pray to him and you read his word. And when you sin, you're grieved by the fact that God knows your sin. And yet you also take hope that God forgives your sin and is near, is near to you in love through the blood of Jesus Christ. We also find great comfort and hope in the fact that God's nearness means that he is ruling in such a way that everything that happens to you, everything that happens to me is according to his plan. And this is a plan that scripture says not to harm us, but to bless us. So his nearness means he's taking care of us. He's with us in love. So that should be a source of thanksgiving and praise as we find here in the beginning of this psalm. And yet if you are not one of God's own, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in God's grace alone to make you right with him, if perhaps you're trusting in your own works, trusting in being religious, um, as you think of God's nearness, it's, it's probably to you a source of irritation and even fear. And you think, I don't want God to be near. You don't even want to think about that. You don't want to think about him. You don't want to think about what he tells you in his word. And if you don't know God as your savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must know that there is nothing covering your sin before God. There's not that, that covering that, that is offered through Christ's blood if you have not received Christ by faith. And so you probably know or at least suspect that you're going to be judged by God and you would rather not face that reality. 
And so it is that God's nearness is a frightening thing for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. It's God speaking in verses 2 through 5, telling us of his sovereign rule, giving us comfort but also warning. Notice, first of all, that he gives us assurance that as God's people, he's going to judge uprightly and he is going to do so at the right time as appointed by him. And he, he's going to make sure that the wicked get what they deserve. Every wrong is going to be handled in strict and perfect justice. And the reason why God does not always immediately judge sin is not because he's somehow unaware of it. It's not because he's distant. It's not that God is unmoved when you are wronged. It's not that God is not able to judge immediately. Now, God has his own timetable, and his ways are not our ways. Now, if judgment were left to us, we would probably, like bolts of lightning, strike down whatever displeases us whenever we would see it. But God chooses to let evil go unchecked some of the time, and sometimes for a long time, at least from our perspective. God chooses to, to bring it down at the right time according to his infinite wisdom. But right now we need to be thinking of it as God's wrath against sin is smoldering. It, God's wrath is there. It's in the background, ready to be unleashed at the proper time. Psalm 74, one reads, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? There the psalmist is feeling like God's anger is perhaps going to be unleashed against them in all of its fury. Spurgeon writes of this, he says, It's a terrible thing when the anger of God smokes, but it's an infinite mercy that it does not break out into a devouring flame. Boyce in his commentary relates the story. He says, I remember how at summer camp we would try to start a fire without matches. And usually we used a magnifying glass to concentrate the hot rays of the sun on dry tinder. Eventually the tinder would get hot and begin to smoke. Usually it took a long time and then suddenly there would be a popping sound and a small bright flame would leap from the kindling. That's how it is with the judgments of God. For a long time there is only smoke, but then suddenly a flame appears that sweeps everything before it. So why is God's anger at present only smoldering? We can answer that question in part by pointing out that God is giving sinners an opportunity to repent of their sin and be saved. Romans 2 verses 3 and 4 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The Apostle Paul is saying that God's kindness, as it's, as it's manifested in his forbearance and patience with the wicked, it's meant to lead them to repentance. They ought to be recognizing this is an opportunity that God is giving me to repent. He's not giving me right now what my sins deserve. He's holding back. That should be leading the wicked to repentance. And then there is the other answer to the question why God is delayed in his judgment. He is allowing man's sin to grow. He's allowing men to express their, their, their evil. He's allowing it to come to full fruition. 
The purpose of that is so that when God finally judges sin, there is going to be no doubt that man is wicked and that man deserves the judgment that he receives. This is perhaps harder to understand. It's harder for many to accept, but it's a truth revealed in many places in Scripture. For instance, God told Abraham that the Amorites would not be destroyed until four generations later. Why is this? Well, Genesis 15, 16 provides the explanation because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Can you be patient while God's anger only smolders? When we are wronged, we want to act now. We want to punish our enemies now. But God says, wait. God says, trust me. This trust is to show itself by our refusal to take justice into our own hands. We're told in Romans 12, verses 17 and following, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. It should be a comfort to you to know that God is going to come in vengeance against your enemies, but yet that truth is only a comfort, right, to those who know that they are personally safe from the judgment of God through Jesus Christ. And I hope that that's true of every one of you here. You should know that you are safe personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that's the only way that you can be safe from God's judgments. We've already seen from verses 4 and 5, God warns those who set themselves up proudly against God. Those who think that they can get away with their sin will be humbled. And what it all boils down to is what we find in verse 3, this reality of God's sovereign rule. When the earth totters, it says, and literally it's in the Hebrew referring to when the earth melts, when it's dissolved and the word has to do with being made helpless disorganized when the earth totters and all of its inhabitants it is i who keep steady its pillars hannah in her song spoke of how the pillars of the earth are the lord's and on them he has set the world the stability of this world of this earth even its very existence is in the hand of the lord the earth and all of its creatures, including us, are completely dependent upon God. To be more specific, it's Jesus Christ who rules this world as king. Remember how he said before he ascended into heaven, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Colossians 1 says that in Jesus all things hold together. It is Jesus who gives stability to this earth, to our earthly life. It is Jesus who can then bring an end the evil and to the curse. I take the first part of verse 3 as looking to that day when this earth will be dissolved and all of the kingdoms of this world will be leveled, that day when all will be laid bare before God. When that Hebrew word refers to the earth melting or being dissolved, it reminds us of Second Peter chapter 3. I want to read from Second Peter, if you want to follow along, Second Peter chapter 3 beginning at verse 10. 
For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'm also reminded of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, 25 through 29 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we, if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is really the perspective of our psalm this evening, that it is God who is in charge. He is sovereignly ruling. He's in charge of those who will be exalted, in charge of what ultimately is going to happen uh, to the wicked who now oppose him. Notice verses 6 and 7, For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The world exalts its own on the basis of its own values and standards, typically exalting those who are beautiful, those who are rich, those who are talented. It's in, the, in this world, it's the wicked who, who seem to have the power, and yet it is God who is ruler. It is God who is judge, and one day the horns of the wicked will be cut off, and the righteous shall be exalted. You and I, that is, the, those who are righteous in Christ, we shall dwell with God in the new heavens and new earth. And so it is that we join with the psalmist in declaring God's praises, verse 9, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And we praise God because in his grace he has chosen to deliver sinners from his judgment. It's God who has graciously made some sinners, the elect, to be righteous in his sight. It is God who has decided to exalt those that here he calls the righteous. None of us are righteous in ourselves, but we are righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God did not have to make us righteous. And he didn't do it because people of this earth are worthy of such exaltation. No, God has chosen to pour out his judgment really on all sin. But in the case of some, he has chosen to punish his son in their place. Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment in the stead of all who trust in him. And one day we will see unrepentant sinners drinking the cup of God's wrath. But there is that other cup that God in his grace gives to the righteous. And you are one of these righteous if you have humbled yourselves in repentance and have taken refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are justified if you are a sinner trusting 
in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his perfect obedience, all in your place. And if you are one of those who is trusting in the Lord Jesus, then you must know that he gives you the cup of the new covenant, the cup of blessing. And praise God that he has drawn near to us in fellowship and friendship through the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Christ we have no, no need to fear the coming day of judgment. And in, in thinking about that, our boasting is not in ourselves, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, it is his death on the cross that makes our glorious future possible. He has earned for us righteousness. He has lifted us to a position of honor as his beloved bride. We are the ones who end up with the horns, but not because we have placed them on our own heads as a way to show off what we believe to be our power and our prestige, but these are horns given to us by grace because in Christ we are the ones who receive honor as we rule with Christ as co-heirs of Christ's glorious inheritance. Imagine being with Christ, being his beloved bride in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who will reverse much of what we see in this world today. We see so many boastful, wicked who think that they are in control of their lives and think that they have this glorious future that will not exist because, Father, you are judge, you are the ruler. We thank you, Father, that you are near, that you are near uh, to know all of what's going on in this world, to know how we are mistreated, to know the boasting of the wicked. You are near to comfort us. You are near to, to work all things for our good. You are near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we thank you for this nearness. We thank you that we do not have to be afraid uh, as we think of your nearness to us, as we think of even the coming day of judgment. We thank you that in Christ you have drawn near to us in love, that you have drawn near to us in grace. Um, Father, we, we know that our nearness to you has nothing to do with our own righteousness, for which we have none. But Father, we thank you that that our nearness to you is based on the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus, on his, based on his perfect work. So, Father, may we remember your nearness as we go through our lives. May it be a source of comfort, also a source of, of uh, encouragement that we would uh, seek to, to glorify you and that we would be diligent walk, watching over our lives, recognizing that you know all things, that nothing can be hidden from you, even the things that are done uh, in darkness. Father, may we live for you out of gratitude for all that you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.